Welcome to Inside the Media Minds. This is your host, Christine Blake. This show features in-depth interviews with tech reporters who share everything from their biggest pet peeves to their favorite stories. From our studio at W2 Communications, let's go Inside the Media Minds. Hey everybody, this is Christine Blake, the host of Inside the Media Minds, and today I am joined by Paul Gillen, Enterprise Editor at Silicon Angle, among other roles. We're excited to talk to Paul today about his background, some of his thoughts on the industry, and tech journalism today. So hey, Paul, thanks for joining us. Hi, Christine. Pleasure to be here. Excellent. Um, so I'd love to get started and um, hear more about your background. I know you have over 23 years of experience covering enterprise technology, starting with um, TechTarget, right? You were the founding editors over there when it first started. It goes back. It goes actually way farther farther than that. It's 38 years. 38 years. Uh, 38 years coming up uh, Labor Day of this year. Uh, I started at Computer World back in 1982. At the time, Computer World was this enormous, uh, very influential publication, uh, published weekly, uh, 250 pages a week. Um, those, of course, that that business has completely gone away now. I, I worked at Computer World for 15 years with a uh, brief side uh, uh, job for two years. I was at PC Week during the founding of that publication, which was a fascinating experience. Um, I was uh, eventually became editor in chief of Computer World. I was uh, then recruited away by Tech Target, which was a six-person startup at that uh, point. Actually, I was the sixth employee there. Uh, we built that up to about 450 people. Uh, I eventually reached my level of incompetence. I was promoted to publisher a job for which I was uh, singularly poorly suited. And uh, after about a year and a half of that, we parted ways uh, by mutual agreement, and I moved out on my own. I have been on my own for almost 15 years now uh, in various capacities as a, uh, as a journalist, uh, but also as a social media marketing uh, consultant and, uh, and writing the whole time. Wow, yeah, that's definitely um, a lot of amazing expertise that you have, and I'm sure that you've seen a lot of changes and evolution throughout the, the years that you've been doing this. Um, yeah, when you're around technology as long as I have, you, you begin to see you know, certain threads that, that, uh, uh, that are common to technology change. I mean, one, one of the reasons, the things that's kept this so intriguing for me all these years is because technology changes so quickly and small changes in technology can have big unanticipated changes down the road. I find that very uh, fascinating. Mm-hmm. How did you get your start um, in the industry so long ago? And you know, you said what kept you to it, but what? How did you get started? Well, I knew I wanted to be a journalist by the time I was 16, uh, when I published a front-page story in my school newspaper about my class's trip to a prison, which got the prison warden so riled that he sent an angry letter to my teacher. Uh, and I thought, this is great. And from that, from then on, that was that was what I wanted to do. So I went to school uh, for journalism, graduated from Boston University, uh, hit the streets at a time when about uh, 10 million other students, journalism students, were hitting the streets. This was in the post-Watergate era when it was very popular for people to go into journalism. I actually didn't land the job uh, initially in my field. I worked in some uh, business. I worked for a college. I worked for a, a business for a while in communications uh, before finally finding out about an opportunity at Computer World and uh, took that, um, uh, pursued that opportunity and that turned into my, into my first journalism job. Wow. Um, and I also, I was reading um, earlier too that you authored a couple books, five books, I think. 
Yeah, uh, four books on my own uh, or with, uh, actually there were two books on my own, three with co-authors. When I uh, left Tech Target, I initially planned to go into sort of content marketing, which wasn't called content marketing at that time, but it was producing white papers and, and uh, various forms of of uh, marketing content. Uh, and uh, quite by accident, I fell into social media. Uh, I discovered a, uh, I wrote a blog post about a, a, a event I attended. Uh, that post was uh, mentioned by the organizer of the event, a guy named Dan Bricklin, who's very well known in uh, technology circles. And all of a sudden I got hundreds of visits to my little blog. And I thought, I thought, this is cool. Mm -hmm. It was the same, the same kind of feeling I had when I published that front page story in my high school newspaper, this is going to change everything. And so yeah. for really for the next 10 years, I spent most of my time focused on social media. This was in the very early days. This is in 2005 mm -hmm. uh, when blogs were really about it. The podcasts and blogs were about everything social media was. Uh, YouTube was very new at that point. Uh, Facebook barely existed. And so, uh, and I found a, a very willing audience of marketers who wanted to understand how the media universe, media landscape was being democratized by these tools. And I thought it was fascinating because I'm a, I'm a media geek. Mm -hmm. So I was fascinated by, by the way publishing was being transformed. I could see right away that this was going to change media forever. Um, Perhaps not, it, not with some of the downsides I think we've seen more recently, but uh, I knew that this was going to be a transformative, uh, pla these platforms were going to be transformative, and I wanted to be in the middle of all that. So uh, I wrote several books. I wrote a book called The New Influencers in 2007, which was one of the first social media marketing books that uh, did quite well. Uh, that was followed with Secrets of Social Media Marketing. And then uh, about a year after that, uh, a book about social media uh, for B2B marketers. Uh, I did another book that I self-published actually called uh, Attack of the Customers, how social media is used to uh, to attack brands. And then um, uh, I did a book with my wife actually on geocaching, which is a game that is played as an internet enabled global game, sort of a treasure hunt game that both of us were fascinated with. And we, uh, we collaborated on a book, uh, again, kind of a community, internet community aspect of that. So I did five books in the course of six years and then uh, burned out. <laughs> I really, really haven't had the muse uh, since then to, to do another. Hopefully one day I will. That's amazing. And you were really on the forefront of when social media was just, you know, coming out and influencing, um, you know, companies and the market in general. I guess one question I have about that is um, what advice would you give? to marketers and companies and vendors when it comes to social media and separating themselves in such a noisy space. And I know times have changed a lot with social media and we're at a very unique spot right now. Um, but what is your take on that? Well, I think social media has gone from being a point of differentiation to just a, a, a cost of doing business. So you need to have a presence in the channels that it makes sense for you to be in. Mm -hmm. uh, and that does not mean all of them. Uh, for B2B companies, you know, Facebook may have questionable value in some cases. Uh, uh, Instagram may have questionable value. Maybe you don't want to be on TikTok. I, I don't know. It's, it's, but for some many consumer companies, those are the channels that are going to matter most for them. I think the, the, the best I can say is to be distinctive about what you do. It'll be helpful, be transparent, be honest, and help your audience. You know, the best social media accounts I've seen over the years have been those that uh, position themselves as helping their audiences to be better at something that's important to them. 
uh, social media is not nearly uh, as as much of a a free promotion channel as it used to be. I mean, you really have to pay now to get much visibility at all. So from a cost perspective, you need to look hard at what you're getting for those uh, for those investments. Uh, but I think that, that there is, still is, uh, you know, for companies that have a, a defined persona in the media that they're using, that put themselves in the shoes of their users, their, their customers, help their customers to succeed. Uh, I still think it's a very valuable tool, just not a, not a free one like it used to be. Yeah, that's the thing. There seems to be a big conversation around paid social versus organic and what you get for each one and how you reach different audiences. Yeah, I just, I just don't think there is any organic social anymore. I mean, unless you are what they call an influencer. I, sometimes my first book was called The New Influencers. I, I wish I had trademarked the term at the time. Uh, the, uh, if you are an influencer, which is an individual, uh, you actually can build a substantial following in social. But I just don't think it's possible for brands anymore. The, the uh, companies, the Twitters, the Facebook companies that, that control these platforms, you know, they, they, they tamp down the influence of any sponsored brand because they want to drive money from them. So it's very hard to break out of that. Yeah, no, that's a good point. That's an interesting perspective too. Um, I want to talk a little bit about your role at Silicon Angle. So what um, types of topics are you covering there? What makes a Silicon Angle story? Let's get into that a little bit. Well, our, our audience is, I mean, it always starts with audience. You need to know that about any publication. What matters is the audience. Our audience is business technology influencers. So these are people who are technology enthusiasts who live within businesses, typically mid-sized to large businesses. So, uh, and, and we're focused on sort of the leading edge. It's not the day-to-day -day mm -hmm. of managing technology. It's more about what's next. So we're very big on cloud, uh, on data analytics and uh, on software defined infrastructure, which is basically cloud infrastructure where you don't have, you know, you aren't managing your servers, but you're managing them, them all virtually. Mm -hmm. um, so those are the three areas we're biggest on. We have uh, some coverage of cybersecurity, although there's an awful lot of noise out there about that topic. Uh, but we try to be, we try to be the, the ones who look around the corner at where uh, cloud computing is going uh, in particular uh, you, you know, what um, uh, IT infrastructure will look like in the coming years as that increasingly becomes sort of amorphous and defined in software. Uh, and we're also just always looking for good, interesting stories, you know, human stories, stories about how the, the, the industry is, is changing, the changes that aren't intuitively obvious. Mm -hmm. That's definitely good insight for our listeners. Um, and then in your mind, how has the pandemic um, affected the business of technology news today? It, it's overwhelmed it. Uh, I mean, I, it, it was remarkable what I saw in, in March where the contents of my inbox, and I get, you know, 60 to 80 pitches a day, mm -hmm. the contents of my inbox went in the course of about two weeks from zero pandemic to about 80% pandemic. Mm -hmm. uh, so everyone was trying to line up behind a pandemic message. Now that has changed somewhat. That is softened somewhat now as the pandemic has become more of a, uh, you know, more of a, a part of our day-to-day -day lives. Yeah. But certainly it has uh, the role of technology in helping organizations and, and people uh, to manage during this uh, pandemic has been uh, uh, amazing. I mean, you look mm -hmm. at how what we're doing right now on a Zoom meeting, this type of thing would have been 
all but impossible five years ago. And we see that society, at least in in the developed world, has managed to carry on in many ways as usual by falling back on tools that were not even available to us just a few years ago. So the role of cloud computing and technology in enabling us to reform these organizations around virtual uh, uh, conferencing systems, around, around collaboration software, has been, I mean, this way was this pandemic couldn't have come at a better time uh, in terms of our readiness to deal with it. Uh, it's hard to imagine 10 years ago how we would have managed without all these tools if we were suddenly all forced into our homes. So it's, it's created a lot of different, there are a lot of different dimensions to this pandemic story that relate yeah. to how technology is helping us deal with it. No, absolutely. I couldn't imagine not being able to have these virtual meetings and all of the different um, ways that people are communicating now. It's, it's truly fascinating. Um, I'm just curious, what were some of like the biggest, um, or I guess the most common topics that you were pitched about in relation to the pandemic? Was it, or is it though shifting workforce or, um, you know, how companies are using the cloud or any trends that you've got? Yeah, I, I think it was the obvious ones. You know, it, it was cybersecurity first and foremost. It's always cybersecurity. Uh, a second would be work from home, adapting to a work from home environment. Uh, I'd say third would be business resilience and uh, keeping the business, uh, restoring some sort of normalcy to business in these uh, situations. And uh, beyond that, not a whole lot. I mean, that really was most of the pitches, considering that, again, probably at least half of the pitches I've had over the last four months have been pandemic related. There's not a lot of different topics that, uh, that I see companies exploring. Sure. Yeah. Do you think that companies should at this point stick to the pandemic, I guess, messaging and storylines, or do you think it's time to kind of shift away and, you know, adapt and evolve some of that messaging? Well, I always think you should go, you should go where where others aren't going. And right now pandemic messaging is so undifferentiated that I think it's really hard to break through. And in fact, I've not done, I did a couple of feature stories early on about, technologies that are going to benefit from the pandemic coming out of the other end whenever this nightmare ends what what technologies will be will be supercharged by this uh, these experience uh, it did another one about the role of cloud uh, in uh, company helping companies adapt to the pandemic again th- that was in March and it was really unclear at that point how that was going to to shake out but I think at this point uh, you know th- there's some interesting sort of spur uh, discussions. Contact tracing, I think, is a fascinating topic that almost no one pitches me about. Uh, Contact tracing is going to be a very important part of bringing us out of this thing uh, eventually. Uh, I think uh, the way uh, vaccine um, trials are conducted is Mm -hmm. is an interesting topic. I think the reluctance of people to take vaccines is another uh, psychological aspect that is worth discussing. There was a survey uh, last week was highlighted in the New York Times, it said that 50% of Americans say they will not take a vaccine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and why is that? What are the psychological issues behind that? So I think, uh, but these, again, these topics don't line up very well to products. So that's why mm-hmm. we don't see companies talking about them. Uh, I think the, the herd psychology, the way, this, the way that we are uh, dealing with this socially and inside our own heads is the most interesting aspect of the pandemic right now. The technology there's not a lot new happening in that area. Sure. Okay. 
Interesting. And then you mentioned that you wrote a couple of stories about what technologies will be supercharged during the pandemic and then coming out of it. What were some of those that, and what are some that you think will be um, really popular? Well, I think it's clear that virtual conferencing is, I mean, this has been a game changer. Um, and uh, be, we will all use these tools much more in the future than we uh, have in the past. Uh, and we will also uh, use them, as, we use the video components more. We'll see each other's faces more. That's been a big change I've noticed. But prior to this pandemic, I almost never saw the people I was talking to in interviews. Now know, right? it's, ra it's rare that it's rare that I'm not on video. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I keep a I keep a polo shirt handy in case I need it. <laughs> um, I, I also um, uh, I think that we will see uh, more. Uh, uh, I, I guess an, an increase in rapid development, creating new applications quickly, trying them, and and then uh, you know discarding quickly discarding the bad and doubling down on the good uh low code it's called sometimes low code development citizen development i think we'll see some big innovations in retail as uh the experience the retail experience will in the future for the for the long term certainly i think for the next five years will be increasingly a virtual one and how do we engage with people via these new channels and actually try to replicate some some element of that shopping experience uh, I think we'll see a lot more uh, advances in mobile because uh, shared touch spaces, things that we used to touch, we used to touch a lot, such as light switches and, you know, bathroom faucets uh, uh, and keypads uh, increasingly will be moved to a mobile platform, a private touch surface instead of a public shared touch surface, for example. So I think we'll see some great innovations coming out of mobile. Uh, I think the contract tracing is going to create some interesting innovations in, uh, in how we um, uh, monitor the movements of crowds and the whereabouts of people. There's certainly some privacy implications there too. Um, so those are a few of the areas I think we'll see we'll see uh, a lot of, of innovation coming out of this. Yeah, it's interesting too. I mean, in an industry that was already so focused on digital transformation, this has certainly um, sped it up even more and made it all a little bit. Right, because there's been no choice. I mean, if you're a retailer, you know, you have no choice but to move online quickly. And those companies that were not prepared to do that, uh, I think are feeling, are feeling the pain. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting. Um, you mentioned that you get... You know, about 60 to 80 pitches a day, which is just mm -hmm. a lot. We hear that a lot from reporters, of course. Well, and, and I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm small, I'm small potatoes. You know, <laughs> the, the people who work at the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times, it's, it's in the hundreds. I don't Probably, even know, yeah. know how they deal with it. Yeah. So I guess my question is, how do you, you know, how do you filter through those and like what catches your eye? Well, subject lines are very important. And, um, and, and the first sentence or paragraph, it's really, kind of is obvious when you think about it. I have only so much time in the day. Uh, so I give each uh, pitch. I look at every pitch. And if the subject line is interesting, uh, if the subject line isn't interesting, I won't even go farther than that. If it's interesting, I'll open it up and I'll look at the first sentence or two. If I'm not engaged at that point, it's unlikely I'll go much farther. Uh, the person who sends it is honestly important. Because over time in this field, you, uh, you create relationships or you, you associate certain qualities of pitch with uh, certain people. And so uh, there are certain public relations people whose messages I always read because I trust them. And I think I understand they know my audience. They know what interests me. And so uh, they get a little extra TLC. 
Mm -hmm. um, you know, you want to keep it short. Uh, ideally, if, if you're going to send a, a 500 word pitch, there's very little likelihood that I'm going to read it. So, uh, so get it, you know, get your message across in the first couple of sentences. And, um, uh, you know, and I guess have an idea of what interests me and what interests my audience. Mm -hmm. You know what I've written about in the past. If you bother to ask me what interests me, then you're going to have a better idea of how to approach me. Mm -hmm. Very good insight. Um, what, what is what would you say is one of the most memorable or interesting topics that you've covered? And I know this is a hard question because you've been doing this for 38 years. But what is something that stands out, or a couple things that stand out that are just really interesting to you? Topics or experiences? Um, both. Okay. Uh, in terms of topics, I think the the ongoing topic that's been most interesting to me is the is the way small changes in technology create big changes in our in our behavior and in our world uh, down the road. And I think of the you know the uh, uh, introduction of the TCP/IP protocol, which gave birth to the the internet and and the World Wide Web, and really did away with a lot of uh, technology wrangling over over other standards I think of, of open open source software and how that has changed mm -hmm. uh, the how that essentially created the cloud um, I, I think of the the personalization the democratization of technology which has been a long-term trend that began uh, with the IBM PC in 1985 and is still ongoing today as technology becomes consumerized and we all we all become you know power users of technology when I think back on, on uh, there are two experiences that stand out to me. One was uh, the two visits that I made to Bill Gates' summer home in 1997 and 1998 with a group wow. of journalists. The group of journalists where we, we met at Gates' house in Seattle. We were flown by seaplane to his, home, to his summer home. Uh, we uh, spent two days in briefings with him and his top lieutenants. Uh, stayed overnight at his house and then were airlifted by helicopter to the airport the next day. Um, that was a remarkable experience. Um, but actually the one that stuck with me over the years so much was in 1994. I attended a conference called PC Forum, which was a very snooty you know, conference in the desert at the time. And uh, that was the year that the commercial internet was just beginning to turn the corner. People were first beginning to become aware of the internet as a as a commercial vehicle. And all these publishers were there, CompuServe and Prodigy and AOL, and Washington Post, and they all had these digital publishing platforms that were based upon, uh, they built themselves their own proprietary formats and had spent a great deal of money and this was their coming out party. And at that uh, conference, John Gage, who was the chief scientist of Sun Microsystems, got up on stage, he had a MacBook and a 14.4 modem uh, connection and he pulled up a, a website that was by a, a young girl, a high school student in Los Angeles had created her own website, very most basic website you'd ever seen, Times Roman, black and white photograph. Mm -hmm. But it was an example of how what all these guys in the audience, they were all guys, had spent millions, millions of dollars over the last year, you know, developing this girl and this high school student had done essentially the same thing. She was publishing using a publicly available set of, 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 of formatting protocols, so HTML. And it completely turned the equation of publishing on its head. And I remember looking at, at the, out of the audience at the, the ashen faces of these publishing executives 
as they watched this and realized that everything they had done for the last year was worthless. And within months, all of those platforms had been discarded and had been completely remade in, in HTML. And we were off to the races with, uh, with the World Wide Web. And, and I think that was, that was just a, an amazing experience. And I, I don't think I'll ever forget it. Yeah, no, that is incredible. You definitely had some um, very formative experiences back in the early, early days of, of the internet and technology. Um, that's fascinating. And I guess, you know, as one of the original six people at, at Tech Target, and then how, you know, things have changed and evolved over, you know, the years until now, what is one of the bigger takeaways that you see, like in the tech journalism industry. I know there's been a lot more publications, a lot of multimedia and social media. What would you say is one of those um, bigger changes? Well, it's it's all about affinity uh, now. It's not about uh, about uh, the size of the audience. And this is one disconnect I see with marketers still is they, they tend to define uh, success using old metrics, such as impressions, such as page mm -hmm. views. Um, these are really meaningless terms in most cases now. The affinity of the audience, the uh, time that they spend with, uh, with a topic or with a publication is, uh, is more important than the number of impressions that you get because we, we all get thousands of impressions every day and, and mm -hmm. most of them, we're trained to let most of them just go over our heads. So I think engagement metrics are, are underappreciated uh, at the expense of the simpler me metrics of, of impressions and, uh, and page views. Um, I think it's important to understand that anybody can still be media mm -hmm. and that the influencers aren't necessarily the people, aren't necessarily the branded publications, uh, you know, with the, big, with the big publishing companies behind them. I think, for example, of Brian Krebs, the security expert, Krebs on security, who has an intensely loyal and passionate following and who is a, Brian Krebs is a terrific journalist on the topic of cybersecurity. Uh, he is not affiliated with a big publishing brand. He just does it because he's passionate about it and he's very good at it. Mm -hmm. And th those people exist in almost every field. And your ability to get, to get beyond the big publishing companies and understand who are these individuals who influence the, who influence the journalists is is really where the where the action is and i just i think many marketers don't have the time to do that mm -hmm. no that's definitely important and something i think that it's a good reminder to be doing those things you know and thinking that way um so i did have a couple listener questions i think i already hit on some of them though because um there were a lot of the questions that i had as well but um one of them was about um what technologies are likely to become popular as a result of working from home i know we touched on that already um but another one sort of related is what are your thoughts on uh virtual events will they ever compare to in-person events or conferences and to what extent will you be tuning into any of these virtual events uh, no, they will never compare, but they will be extremely important in the future. And I'm, I'm actually just finishing up a, a feature article on this. I've talked to uh, eight, about eight companies over the last week that have that were pivoted, were forced to pivot from physical to virtual events in the spring, and it's been a fascinating topic. Uh, everybody has did it somewhat differently. Everybody has somewhat different experiences, but their experiences have been unanimously positive. Uh, they the bottom line impact has been uh, much greater than what they see from a, from a conference uh, or, or a trade show. 
Uh, I mean, they generate more leads, more people come, more people register, they're able to measure how long people actually spend in the sessions. The engagement metrics are very strong. Um, they, I mean, everyone I've talked to has been, uh, has been extremely impressed with the success of these virtual, virtual uh, events. Yet when I ask them, will you go back to physical events in the future, they all say yes, <laughs> because you can't, despite the cost, which is you know, three to 10 times higher, uh, the, the benefits of that in-person interaction is something that we will, I don't think ever be able to emulate virtually. I mean, maybe long in the future, but uh, virtual, they're just limitations to the virtual experience that uh, they can't be, that don't duplicate the uh, physical event. That said, I think that you will see every technology company and probably every company in the future as they create their virtual, uh, as they create their physical events, will have a much stronger virtual component to them than has been the case in the past. Yeah, I think it'll almost be a combination moving forward. And it's something that uh, I know people in the communications industry and we've been talking to our clients a lot about because it's it's hard because everyone went to these big um, conferences, Black Hat, RSA, all those, and then now they're just becoming virtual. And I like your point about the engagement metrics. You can see who, who tuned in for how long, what, you know, you can send them follow-up materials because they registered with an email address. And it's def there's definitely gonna be a place for it, I think, moving moving forward. Well, whenever you lower the barriers to entry, and this is something that's always been true of technology, when you remove barriers to entry, things change fundamentally, Sure. right? I mean, transistor radios change the way people listen to music. Uh, you can go way back. Uh, you know, personal computers change the way people related to, to computers. Uh, mobile uh, smartphones change the way people use the internet. And I think you've, you've seen a, a similar change here where you've removed, I mean, all of these companies, they ditched their registration fees. They went to free, to free mm -hmm. registration. So they removed the barriers to entry. All of them saw huge increases in audience as a result. And that's something that makes you sit back and say, wow, this is a big change. So uh, I think that that is going to um, virtual events have finally have finally happened. It's been 20 years that yeah. that uh, we've been talking about virtual events as as re replacing or complementing physical ones, and it's finally happened. Yeah, definitely, it's fascinating. Well, Paul, it's been really fun talking to you and, and learning more and hearing your um, your insight and expertise in the industry and your background. Um, any final thoughts or any other things you want to discuss? Uh, I would just say. Uh, you know, for the PR people out there, understand I did get your email. <laughs> uh, the uh, follow-up is not really necessary. Uh, if you want to know what I'm interested in, what I'm working on, uh, email me. Don't call me. I mean, that's over. <laughs> I, yeah. I remember the days when the phone was the only tool we had, and, and it sucked. Uh, you know, ask me. I'll be glad to, to give you a rundown on, on what I'm interested in, what I'm working in. Uh, the better you know what I'm looking for in advance, the, the less time both of us will waste. That is fantastic advice and uh, definitely good to know and good to keep in mind as everyone works with you more and more and uh, continues to read some of your stories. So thanks so much. Thanks for the opportunity. Absolutely. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, this has been Christine Blake, the host of Inside the Media Minds. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll talk to you next time. Thank you for joining us on today's episode of Inside the Media Minds. To learn more about our podcast and hear all of our episodes, please visit us at w2com.com slash podcast and follow us on Twitter at Media Mind Show, and you can subscribe anywhere podcasts are found. 